Well, it's Pastor Ed's birthday yesterday, and so we wish him a, a happy birthday. As you can tell, his mind's a little foggy. Um, you know, he kind of forgets things a little. So just be kind of talk slow. And uh, we had him stay home last night because, you know, he's like just way too old to come on Saturday night and Sunday morning now. And so anyway, we love you and celebrate your life. You feel the love. Good. Yes, that's good. Um, the really beautiful thing about it is that he's always going to be a few months older than I am. That's a very, very good thing. Well, this time um, in the season of the church that we've been talking about, this time after Christmas going into Lent and then to, to Easter is called Epiphany. As a matter of fact, the, the literal meaning of the season in the church calendar is that those outside the faith at that time, those outside the Jewish faith, the Gentiles had been brought in, that they had begun to experience things suddenly that they'd never experienced before. And then we use that word epiphany for things that we have kind of ahas. Ah, I had an epiphany about that. And so it's something that we under, where we understand something that we didn't understand some of the elements before. Something kind of comes alive in us. And so one of the reasons that we're doing this series on the life of Jesus going up to Easter is so that we might kind of pay attention a little bit more this year as we look at his life and the story of his um, life here on earth. Uh, what might we see different? What might we see new that we've never seen before? And so just pay attention to that and prepare yourself for that. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the stories that you know about. And sometimes when we hear those stories, we kind of go, oh, I know what that is. I know what that's about. And we, we kind of stop listening in our hearts. And so we believe God's going to speak to us on some different levels today. We're going to look at the first miracle of Jesus today, uh, turning water into wine at a wedding celebration. And this is the beginning of this story where we begin to see that, oh, okay, there's something different here, that this is not just any person. This stuff is happening that normally doesn't happen. And so we'll see that as we see these kind of miraculous signs um, continue to happen. And again, just make sure you don't click off. Oh, I know what, I know what, yeah, water into wine and put the water in, you know, these big pitchers and uh, um, just, just keep listening because there's some deeper things here that tell us why he came in the first place. And then he tells us some important things on what it means to follow in his footsteps, what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus and what it means about our own life. So we're going to start in John, John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. 
This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, I remember the first time I came to Or Roberts University back in 1974. It was the year after they put electricity in the dorms. And... Uh, I'm from Indiana, and so I'm a basketball guy, and at that time, we had a great basketball team in 1974. The very first basketball game I went to, I, I was up in the stands, and I looked at the floor, and I just saw this kind of odd thing on the sides of the floor. It said, expect a miracle on both sides. And I thought, hmm, we must not think much about our basketball team. Uh, <laughs> if... If you've got to have a miracle, um, you know, to win, I knew it was, you know, I came to understand that this was kind of the mantra of ORU, and, uh, um, but I thought it was a little bit odd at first. Um, we use that miracle a lot, don't we? Um, boy, it's a, it's a miracle that they're still together. Or it's a miracle that she actually graduated from college. Or it will be a miracle if the Congress ever gets, you know, collaborating on this debt ceiling, right? And so we use that term, miracle, in lots of different ways. Uh, miracle actually means an extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers, and it is ascribed to a supernatural cause, an event considered a work of God. So we're talking about things outside of our human powers. So even though it might seem like a miracle that somebody graduates from school, it actually is not. Um, they, people actually do that every day. Now, we, we live in the miracle Mecca, don't we? If you've been in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a while, then you have received messages about miracles and the potential for miracles in your life. You've been told that if you pray in faith that you can have your miracle, that if you pray a certain kind of prayer in a certain way, and actually, if you believe that you will receive, then you will get your miracle. And it gives this impression that we are very much in control of this somehow. I got a notice from my bank this last week that said that uh, my uh, debit card had had some fraudulent activity on it. Some of you have had those experiences where they have got to cancel it and send you a new one. And... Fraudulent, that word fraud actually is the false representation of something. I believe that this idea that somehow we can just kind of conjure up a miracle whenever is necessary, when that is communicated to us, it's actually fraud. It's actually misrepresenting something. And I think it actually does harm to us in so many ways. This idea that I need this to happen and because it didn't happen in my situation, it happened in their situation, but it didn't happen in mine, there must be something wrong with me, or I must have not done it just right, or maybe there's actually something wrong with God, or this actually doesn't work. I was raised in the I Dream of Genie years, any of you, you know, where you kind of just, you know, rub the deal, and then the genie appears, and that's kind of the message that we've been given. I think it's a misrepresentation. Now, I certainly believe in miracles. I believe they can happen. I believe they still happen today. Matter of fact, we oftentimes as pastors are presented situations that the end result is we really need a miracle here. The only way that this situation is going to change is with a miracle. And we pray, we believe because we know that he still 
those miracles. Now, exactly how this happens, exactly why it happens to one family and not to another, we don't know. It's still, it's still a mystery. But we trust the power that is still available for miracles. And so um, we hope for it, we believe in it, we pray for it, and we still see them. Matter of fact, I was with a friend of mine just the last couple of days in the hospital. He's my age, and, and uh, he had a massive heart attack at home. His wife did CPR um, for four minutes until um, the medics showed up. Took him to the hospital, and the doctors officially said that he died twice, that he was officially dead. They pronounced him dead. They even put the, put the time stamp on it, and he came back to life each of those times. Matter of fact, the last time they said, if he comes back at all, we're, we're, you know, it's, we're sorry, but he will just be, he'll be a vegetable. Uh, that his brain will ju- is so, is, is, has been so limited of oxygen. There's just no way. I was sitting there on Thursday with him, holding on to his hand, and he's asking me about every one of my kids. Now, Spencer's at what grade's he in? And, I mean, he was fully there. He was fully alive. The doctors even were using the word, it really is a miracle that he came back. Uh, now, his heart is not fully whole yet. They're releasing him actually today, but he needs some other treatment for his heart to, to uh, um, become stronger. But he sat there and told me stories. Uh, now, I don't know if, he was, if it was the drugs he was on or if these were a real vision. He said, Brent, I tell you, the hospital, he, saw, he said, I saw the white light. He said, the whole place um, became, became white. It overwhelmed everything. I couldn't see the nurses. I couldn't see the doctors anymore. He said, I saw animals running up and down the hallways <laughs> of the hospital. And uh, I didn't go into detail exactly what that was about. I was just like, okay. Uh, kind of you know, goosebumps a little bit hearing the story. And he said, I felt like I wasn't done yet. And he said, I, I remember simply saying that. I thought, I don't think I'm finished yet. And he said, the light just slowly went away. And uh, I saw the doctors and the nurses again. A miracle. And so, again, we certainly believe in them. But um, believe a little bit more that a proper perspective on this is, uh, matter of fact, one of the deans of the theology department over you, Dr. Matthews, written a book called Ministry Between Miracles. He was a uh, city of faith, uh, talk about the, the mecca of the miracle world in our era. He was a chaplain at the city of faith for years. That's how he started uh, there. And he said, Brandon, we saw, I saw, saw amazing things happen. But he said most of life was lived in between the miracles. They were unique events. They were periodic events. And he said there was not a formula. He said we didn't understand why it happened to one family and not to another family. But it certainly happened. C.S. Lewis says that a miracle by definition is an exception. It's something unique that happens. Now John here he, he uses the term miraculous signs. Matter of fact, he talks about these signs um, that are happening. Many theologians say that the middle of John from chapter 2 to 12 is a book of signs, that it's showing um, what's going to happen and, and uh, speaking about something that's happening in the future. These signs are times when heaven intersects with earth. 
It is what happened in the temple. We talked about the temple and the Holy of Holies and that time that heaven intersects earth. Um, Pastor Ed talked about communion. It's this time that we believe that heaven intersects earth. We don't exactly know how it works and what it means, but we believe it is that time that happens. It certainly is what happened when Jesus, uh, God, took on human flesh and wrapped, wrapped um, himself up in this. That truly was heaven connecting with earth. That's why one of the mottos of the whole gospel story is if you go back to, to John 1, just one chapter back, it says, the world became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Heaven intersecting with earth. So this miracle, this turning water into wine was heaven intersecting earth. It was a transformation. It was something going from one substance um, to another substance. It shows what can happen in our lives, how we can be transformed and changed. That's why we talk a lot about uh, one of our core values is transformation, is looking for that change to take place in our life, going from one form uh, into another form. So let's go back to the text as we see Jesus doing his first miracle in a very, very practical circumstance. So we've got a wedding here. I love doing weddings. It's a lot of joy and, and uh, anticipation and hope and dreaming for the future and uh, they're, they're, they're wonderful things. And so that's where he does this first one. Mary um, was believed to have been friends of the family. And Jesus and his disciples were invited as well. It's about eight miles north of where they were living. So we could probably have walked there. Uh, but, but weddings were a little different back then. Now, similar in that you invited all your family and friends. And it, again, it was this time of celebration. But rather than weddings lasting about 45 minutes and then having a reception for a couple hours afterwards... The wedding process lasted for seven days, and it was the family's responsibility to take care of all of the people that came for all seven days. They're responsible to house them, to feed them, to make sure that everything um, that, that they needed, that they had. It was a, it was a very, very big deal. Um, can you imagine picking up that tab? Um, I still have two daughters unmarried, and I'm glad we're living now. Um, <laughs> And so, to understand, again, about what it means about wine running out, uh, wine represented, you know, believe, people believe that you really couldn't have joy, you couldn't really have celebration without wine. Uh, again, some of you still believe that. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was something that it, if you ran out of something like this, it would actually scar the whole experience. It would, it would uh, really put a black mark, they thought, on uh, the marriage. And we have to understand that, that at this time, there was no wines are us around the corner, okay, where you just go, hey, we're running out of wine. Let's, let's go get some. And so this was, uh, could have been a, a social nightmare for this family. So basically, Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, is there anything you can do to help, to help our friends here? Now, as we read the story, we know that Jesus said, go fill these clay jars up with, uh, with water and as, they were, as the water then was poured out, it actually was better wine. It was the best that they had they'd ever experienced the whole time. And as we've talked about all of these stories, there are, there are layers of understanding of what really has taken place here. Uh, church fathers over the years and theologians have, have pulled all kinds of, of truths out of this. Um, one of the titles of, of one guy's message was the conscious water saw its God and blushed. 
water turning into wine. Another one was the first miracle was something like creation itself. It was done by the power of the word. Jesus just spoke the word and said, just do this. Pour water in there. The next one was the best wine was kept until last. Up until then, in the unfolding revelation, the poor wine had been the prophets, the judges, and kings, Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. All were like the water awaiting the expected of the nations. Another one was the wedding is the foretaste of the great heavenly feast in store for God's people. The water jars used for Jewish purification rites are a sign that God is doing a new thing from within the old Jewish system, bringing purification to Israel and the world in a whole new way. And all of these are full of truth. All these are rich. All of these we could go off and talk about uh, each one of these. But I specifically want to look just for a moment at Jesus' initial response to Mary. His first response in verse 4 says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. It's always seemed like an odd response um, to his mother here. But if you look at scripture, the hour or time, when, it, when that word is used, it always refers to the cross. It always refers to what ultimately Jesus came for. Jesus is saying it is not time for me to reveal what my purpose is and what I came here for. So he starts his public ministry in this very joyous celebration in a very positive way where, where he's talking and, and even experiencing uh, this transformation of, 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 of water into wine. He actually will use the, the idea of a wedding, the, the bride and the bridegroom, bridegroom to give perspective on his relationship to the church. Yet, as we look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels here, one of the things that we will always see is that there is always a counterpoint to joy with sorrow. Whenever we see joy um, and the influence of Jesus in that way, there's always going to be a counterpoint of suffering. For you will see from this point forward, the reality is that Jesus came to die, that that was his purpose. That is why he came. His, his hour was to come. In John 7, it goes on and says, They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his, his hour had not yet come. John 8, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. John 12, my, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this person... For this purpose, I came to this hour. So the hour is the crucifixion, the, the resurrection, and the ascension. So everyone else, all of us have been born to live. But ultimately, Jesus, his sole purpose was he was born to die so that others might live. He is in essence saying to his mother that by saying this, by Asking me to do this, that you are pronouncing a death sentence on me. Now, this is the last time that we, we will hear Mary speak in the scripture. It's as if she steps back. Now, she has stewarded his life up to now. She took care of him as a little baby. She fed him. She clothed him. Um, she cleaned his scrapes on his knees when he was running across uh, to the neighbor's house. Uh, and she cared for him. And, but now she steps back. 
and she nudges, she nudges him forward, and she simply says, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. That's what I want us to hear this morning. Do whatever he says. So this story, along with others that we're going to follow, are about transformation. It is that different place or that different dimension in reality that comes when Jesus is present and people do what he says. When Jesus is present and people do what he says. Now, there's a lot of things that Jesus says to do, aren't there? So we talk about a lot of times when we're talking about his life and his ministry. He tells us all kinds of things. Uh, he says, love people who have been mean to you or have said bad things to you. Love them. He says, if someone offends you or disrespects you, don't retaliate. If someone wants your leather coat, give them your sweater also. If your boss makes you work late and asks you to do something personally for him outside your job description, ask him the next day, is there anything else you can do for him? Now, what do all these have in common? Are these our natural responses? I don't know about you, but they're not mine. Um, all of these require one thing. They require dying to ourself. They require changing from our natural responses to things. I have people come to me all the time recognizing that they need to change, that something needs to be different in their life. And there's something that I kind of watch for, and that is, are they, first of all, convinced that they need to change? Maybe somebody else has recommended that they come talk to me. <laughs> and they're not yet quite convinced themselves. And so I know that there's no way for them to have transformation unless they own that, unless they recognize, I need to change. And then that they realize that they can't do it themselves. It is absolutely the opposite of our human tendency, which is, I got this. <laughs> I can handle this. I've got things pretty well figured out. I can do this. I don't need anybody else. Uh, which is what our, our natural response is. That's why we have to be instructed to die to ourselves. It's not a natural thing for us to do. We have to be told that we need to be part of this death. Now, if you study the brain, you'll find that the main purpose of the brain is to increase pleasure and decrease pain. So we should think that if we just let the brain kind of do what it naturally is supposed to do, that everything should work out just fine, right? So you get stressed and anxious because something difficult has just come up in your work or in your relationship or something around you, and you're stressed over it. So your first reaction is to stop and think, oh, gosh, I wonder what God's going to teach me through this, right? Not exactly. The brain goes, decrease pain. How do, I, how do I get away from this anxiety or stress? And so I should just kind of not think about it. I think I'll just go watch television and just numb out. Um, or I'll pick my favorite drug of choice and I will get high or I will just get foggy or, or you know, I think it's just time to go eat something. <laughs> Someone offends you. Natural response is to forgive them immediately, right? Not usually. We think about how bad they really are, and we try to convince everybody else how bad they really are um, so that um, we don't need to forgive them. And it's just best, I want to decrease pain. So it's just best not to hang around them again. I'm just not going to talk to them again because I don't want to put myself in that position. I get overlooked for the promotion. First thought is, 
gosh, God must have a better plan for my life. Not usually, huh? We spend all of our time trying to tell everybody how bad our boss is, and we deserve this, and, and this is unfair, and we fight for our rights. Now, sometimes people think that if God would just take all the bad stuff away, if he would just make everything go well in my life, I don't know why he doesn't do that, then I could trust him more. How did that work in the Garden of Eden? Everything was perfect, right? All of their needs met. They had all the food that they needed. They didn't even need clothes. It was perfectly, perfect temperature all the time. They, could, they walked with God, talked with him personally. And that went well, right? No. I don't think I need him. I think I can be my own God. Um, I can do this myself. And so it doesn't quite work that way. Now, Paul, Apostle Paul speaks about this and speaks directly about this, this sense of, of um, being self-responsible and I can do this myself and I don't, I don't, uh, I don't need anybody else for this. I, I can handle it with my own strength. So Paul tells a story and says, I was born in this great family, the perfect family. Um, I went to all the finest prep schools. I ultimately got into college. I got a doctorate from Harvard. I got another one from Yale. Uh, I climbed to the highest position in my field, and I can't even keep up with all the uh, expectations and all the requests for me to come and speak and share my great wisdom. This is all found in Philippians 3. Um, but where he ultimately ends up, speaking about his own strength, his own wisdom, is I have learned that all of this, all of this that I think I know myself is trash. He calls it rubbish. I'll let him speak for himself in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's why we call this upside-down kingdom. It's about surrendering our will to the will of God. Now, it's not that God is just this control freak, but it's that he knows better, that he knows best, that his ways are higher than our ways. Uh, it's as if he wants to give us a Lamborghini, and he wants us to be able to drive this right at the peak of the speed limit on the Pacific Coast Highway. And he wants us to enjoy that, windows down, be able to look at the beautiful scenery. But from our perspective, we've never even seen a car. We don't understand what a car is. So we get in this car, I close the door, and go, wow, it's pretty quiet. Um, I guess this would probably keep the rain off. I mean, this, would be, this could be a good little house to live in. Well, these seats are cool. Wow, they lay back and m move up. I wonder what all these little dials are because we don't even know to ask for the keys because his ways are higher than ours because we stay focused on our own plan and our own, our own will. He has something better than we could ever imagine for us. Um, as I said, every issue, that every person that has struggled with something that's walked in my office over the last 30 years, um, the key for that place of transformation has been to be absolutely convinced that I have something in my life that I cannot fix, that I've been trying, I can't fix it, but I'm hoping and I'm believing that God can. 
That is the beginning of, of transformation. That's why some of the healthiest people that I've ever met are ones that have made the biggest messes of their life that you could possibly imagine because they have to give up. They have had to cry uncle and say, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't be my own God. I can't make it better myself. Uh, It has forced them to be dependent on God. It has forced them to position themselves in a place where each day they get up and go, I can't do this, but God can, and I'm going to let him do it. It's the healthiest place that people can, can find themselves in. But the challenge is most people are still thinking, I've got this pretty well handled. I can do this myself. I'm a good guy. I, I don't do real bad stuff. I go to church. I'm faithful in that. I, you know, I'm, I'm nice to people. I give in the offering. And we think that we somehow have this handled ourselves. That's why, as I've, that's why as I've told you my own story a little bit about how one of my sins manifests itself. Uh, I came face to this many years ago and that I was living a life where I was convinced that the way that I was going to prove myself as a valuable person was that I had to work harder than anybody else around me. I had to spend more hours at the office. I had to be the last person to leave. Matter of fact, I fed on that. Uh, it was something that, that, that gave me a sense of validity in life. It was an absolute sin. Sin is anything that you put in the center of your life other than God. And I was absolutely doing that. I was, I was clueless about it because I got all kinds of other messages. I got some people that would come to me and go, gosh, Brown, I don't know how you do everything you do. How do you keep up with the schedule? Um, outwardly, I'd say, well, you know, just, just pray for me. You know, it's, you know things, are, things are good. And inside, I was going, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's my, sorry, it was my, my need to edit that. Um, it was, it was my drug of choice. And I've had people of the years go, oh, work, well, that's not that bad, you know. No, I'm telling you, I was a, an aholic. I was, I was addicted to this. I had to make sure that I did things just right so that nobody would ever criticize anything that I did. I was a perfectionist. I had to spend more hours. And I'm telling you, that's why it took me so long to get any kind of proper orientation on this because I I wasn't convinced that I had a problem that needed to be changed. I wasn't convinced that I was broken, that I needed to fix something. And that's why I say that it would have been much better if you could actually get arrested for overworking. It would, have been, it would have been best for me if after a certain amount of hours of work in a week, if somebody would have barged into my office, handcuffed me, drug me downtown, took my little mug shot, and put my picture in the paper. It would have forced me to go, I'm broken. Um, but I still was in that group that thinks, I can do this. I can handle this myself. Uh, it's not that bad. Paul speaks about this um, in a situation that he couldn't fix. Matter of fact, it talks about how he prayed for God to take it away over and over again. But we pick it up and he says, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Upside down kingdom. Therefore, I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Upside down. 
so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses upside down, so that Christ's power, uh, delight in, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Upside down thinking. We're, we're called to follow, um, to follow a God, to follow a life that did things different than the way that we think, the way that, certainly the way that I was taught, the way even I, I taught others for a long time in my life. So, what I'm suggesting, in this epiphany season, what I'm suggesting that each of us, what would happen? If each of us would go to another level, just recognizing, okay, there's, there's something in my life that I can't fix. I need to own that. I need to take responsibility for that. I need to put that into the hands of God and trust what he might do. What would happen if we took that little shell that all of us have, um, that, that little mask that we wear, we know how to kind of present ourselves on Saturday night or Sunday mornings, that little shell that we just don't let people past. What if we laid that down and said, I'm willing to die. I'm willing to, to live and to follow in, in his death, to own that and to take hold of that. I believe that the most transparent people are still hiding something. We're still hiding with fig leaves, just, just covering up a bit, just don't want anybody else to quite, to quite see. So during this... Uh, Epiphany season, I'm suggesting, um, let's die together. Let's walk in that, uh, walk in his steps so that we can fully live.